Welcome back, journeyers, to another episode of Reed Keeper's Journey. This episode, we follow Michael, Steve, and Bear. Now that they're finally in the Hyperborean capital, Ro Penmon, they journey to the throne room in hopes of requesting from the king help to find Trindok so they can find their way back home. Unbeknownst to the boys, Heather, Stacy, and Ken have also reached the capital. Now, back to the story. Chapter 41 Michael strode in what he assumed was his room for the foreseeable future and dropped his saddlebags on the floor. A cloud of dust emitted from them when they struck the ground. The snobby attendant that directed him to his chambers remained in the hallway. These are your quarters. Since you travel with them, you will be treated like them. He sniffed, covering his face with a corner of his toga. Michael ignored the apparent insult. From what he had seen so far, he would rather be associated with the Metaf. For starters, it looked like they owned a wing of the palace. No doubt something agreed upon by the treaty. He was the last one to be seen to his room, which he was sure was intended as another slight, and ignored it like all the other sneers and side glances he had received since entering the palace. Any hope of being accepted by these people was dashed the moment they saw him arriving with the dryads, and honestly, he was fine with that. The longer he was around these Hyperboreans, the more he felt insulted for being mistaken for one of them. They were slave owners, rapers of nature, and the looks they directed at Zoe and her companions did nothing to improve his opinion of them. You will need to bathe and dress before you're allowed in the king's presence, the attendant said. Michael turned and stared at the toga-wearing idiot who, after a moment, slunk away from his gaze, muttering something about barbarians. To be fair, weeks had passed since his last bath, but still, it was rude to tell someone to bathe even if they needed it. He closed the door, catching sight of the guard in the hallway, and slid the locking bolt in place. He turned and took in his new surroundings. His accommodations were comfortable enough, and he welcomed the isolation. His new living space was provided with a washroom with hot and cold running water, a sleeping area with a modest cot, and a decent-sized living room with furniture decorated with the eye-jarring colors that Michael would forever associate with dryad decor. He eyed the stone bath and decided it was time to get cleaned up, because he wanted to, and not because now, in close quarters, a certain aroma seemed to fill the air. Cleaned and refreshed, Michael stared into a glass mirror and rubbed at the stubble on his face. It should be longer. Three days had passed since his last shave, and he barely had a five o'clock shadow. Bear can hear the earth breathe. Steve can smell gold, and I can't even grow a beard, he thought. Not to mention that those two were hairier than a bunch of cousin-loving hillbillies. Clean and dressed in clothes that were, for the most part, de-wrinkled, Michael had hardly sat down before a different attendant knocked at his door, summoning him to the throne room. Leave your sword, a soldier commanded as Michael reached for his weapon. Michael's hand froze, a spike of fear piercing his chest. Suddenly, he was six again, and his mom was telling him in no uncertain terms that he could not bring his blankie. The weapon had not been out of his sight since Cylon had gifted him with it. Even in the bath, he made sure it was within reach. 
Since the vision of the smithy, Michael couldn't deny the bond between him and the sword, or the correlation of wearing it and him staying calm. Someone coughed. Michael looked up to see half a dozen eyes staring back at him through the doorway. Steve gave him a look that said, Are you cool, dude? While Bear's expression read, We've got your back. It's not my safety I'm worried about, guys. He thought, pulling his hand back empty. It's yours. Michael and his friends, along with the Dryads, were led through a series of corridors that were all designed to brag about the Hyperborean accomplishments and the power of their kingdom. Banners of purple and gold draped the hallways, and every several feet there was an expensive vase or statue or painting that proclaimed Hyperborean superiority. The company came to a stop before two gaudy doors blocked by two bulky guards decked out in full centurion armor. The group stood outside the doors, waiting far longer than Michael thought was necessary in what he suspected was some type of political power play, a notion that was not lost on Zoe, whose braid practically bristled like a cat's tail. He hoped Zoe would keep her cool with the king and not jeopardize any offer of help with their search for Trendok. After seeing how these people acted, it was a faint hope, Michael admitted to himself, but an outburst from Zoe would spoil any chance they might have. Michael continued to refuse to entertain the thought that the journey might turn out to be a dead end. The doors swung open, and the group quickly and rudely were ushered into the throne room. The chamber reminded Michael of cathedrals back home with its vaulted ceilings and massive stone pillars, though this room had guards standing at attention at each column. Instead of a cross being the center of attention, the architecture drew the eye to the far end where a throne sat illuminated with natural light that poured in from a gigantic crystal dome set a hundred feet above in the ceiling. The way the king lounged on his gaudy throne as he watched the girls approach infuriated Michael. The throne room reeked of narcissism, greed, and a thirst for power. With one look at the king, Michael knew why. The old Hyperborean was thin and spidery, draped in voluminous robes of purple and gold with a blood-red hem and stitching. He looked like the type of person who enjoyed pitting others against each other, and Michael was sure he took immense pleasure from firing people and taking away their livelihood, or their very lives. With less than a day in the capital, Michael could hardly blame the suspicion and dislike that Zoe had slung his way, though by now he had hoped that she had realized he wasn't like these people. The feel of the room was a polar opposite from his experience with the Dryad's matriarch, Hippolyta. Their mother radiated a peace and empathy more akin to that of a kind and wise counselor rather than a leader of a nation. The Hyperborean that sat before him oozed cruelty that was full of diffidence and self-congratulation. The Dryads followed Zoe into the chamber and then took their place a little off to the side with Leander and Xylon on their heels. Michael didn't know where to go, so he stood a little further back from Zoe with the hope that he could address the king personally. He gave Bear and Steve a quick shrug as they placed themselves a little behind him. Maybe he should have gone with the Dryads, but it was too late now. Michael didn't know if he should bow or not, but since no one else did, he refrained. He glanced at Leander, but the monk refused to meet his gaze as he mopped the sweat from his forehead with a shaking hand. Xylon held an uncharacteristic tense look with his eyes locked on the king. I am Zoe of the Metaf, second keeper of the staff, daughter of Epitropus of Meglios Zulan, 
bride of Hyperborean. She said, less like a greeting and more like a challenge. Michael groaned internally. So help me, you better not blow this for me, Zoe, he thought. Greetings. I am Ladorn of the Hyperborean, high king and descendant of Phaeus the Faithful, and husband of Meta. Does the treaty still hold? The king's predatory eyes belied his aloof tone. It does, Zoe said in a way that screamed no thanks to you. I have come to offer my blood and my body, my limbs and my spirit, to sustain the treaty. May the shade of our agreement hold our people together. May it light the path of our future. This is it. She's really going through with it, Michael thought. He had always figured, well, he didn't know what he thought. It just didn't seem right. Zoe hated these people, and in a short time here, Michael knew that living here would kill her. The place would suck the life out of her. His hand grasped at air. Damn it! He wished he had brought a sword. The king sat up, shedding his veil of boredom. And so now you finally come, under the guise of tradition and law. Speak no lie. Tell me why you're here, tree lover. The insult hung in the air. A wave of rage pulsed from the dryads. Without moving a muscle, each girl became a taut spring. The guards lining the columns picked up on the energy as well. Some shifted their grips on their spears, while others slowly eased their swords in their scabbards. I came to continue the treaty. Our mother felt the passing of our sister Acantha, your betrothed and queen, Zoe said with far more self-control than Michael had ever seen from her. My hand raised at Trindog. She is dead. She broke her own silver cord, her golden bowl shattered by her own hand. Ladron snarled. I watched her body soar into the earth, driven mad by our son's death. Bride of Hyperborean, you have no groom. What? I have traveled here to present myself, and you have failed to provide a groom for me? As agreed upon, I have sent messengers twice a year for five years, and was answered with no reply or return. And now you, you come when my army is ready to remedy the insults your witch mother's silence causes and repay her for the spilling of blood of those sent. Zoe opened her mouth to reply, but a tremendous boom interrupted her. Michael whipped his head around, his hand again reaching for his sword, and came back empty. Damn it! Wait, is that... Ken? Ken, who looked like he'd rather be anywhere else, and for good reason, whispered a sorry loud enough to fill the chamber's tense silence. He slunk next to the three girls. Heather? Stacy? What is she doing here? Stacy's eyes locked on his own, with her hands covering her mouth. She looked both relieved and afraid. She better be afraid. A tall centurion in gleaming armor marched forward, his steps reverberating through the throne room. He strode past Zoe and knelt. My king, Portus Petra has fallen. The room erupted into chaos. Betrayal! They have broken the treaty! A robed figure shouted as he rushed from behind the throne. The king shot to his feet, eyes darting. Armed figures poured in from all directions. 
Zoe leapt in front of Michael and pulled two long knives from somewhere in her armor. The dryads followed suit and flowed around Michael and his friends, encircling them, all brandishing long knives like Zoe, each focused on the threats before them. Even Steve had a long curved blade and winked when he caught Michael's eye. Bear emitted a growl so deep that Michael felt the vibration in his chest. Assassins! The robed figure screamed, spittle flying from his mouth. Protect your king! The guards charged. Enough! Xylon's voice boomed. He seemed to swell and grow as a staff materialized in his hand. He slammed the butt of the staff into the ground, cracking the stone floor. Michael locked his knees to keep from falling as the floor bucked beneath him and commanded his legs not to run from the terrible sight. I have returned. Chapter 42 Not once in his 17 and a half years of life had Steve ever experienced an honest-to-goodness moment of stunned silence. Sure, he'd witnessed a multitude of awkward silences, generally created by Ken. The dude had a certain je ne sais quoi for saying the exact wrong thing at the deliciously wrong time. It wasn't that Ken took pleasure in watching people squirm, though Steve did, at least when he was not the cause of the squirmation. Was that a word? Anyhow, Steve suspected Ken's goal was to dispel the tension that welled up in his insides by saying something, anything, and in doing so, caused even more awkward tension. Ken was the Oedipus Rex of social situations. Apart from the awkward silences generously generated by his friend, Steve also had been privy to at least a half a dozen of what he liked to call seven-minute lulls. He theorized that conversations generally ran their course in seven minutes, after which a momentary gap took place until a new topic was taken up. Apparently, even words got tired and required rest. But a stunned silence? No, never. And Steve wanted to revel in the experience. Not a finger twitched, nor a gaped mouth closed. The very air held its breath. The stillness was absolute and all-encompassing as the world centered itself around the figure that stood before the broken floor of the stone room. Trendok, the Hyperborean Anani. The smell of burnt rock filled the air. Not that Steve had ever smelled burnt rock, but he knew the caustic smell just the same. It was a painful scent, as if the very stone was shocked and horrified that a deity stood upon it. Xylon, or Trendok, had doubled in size and stood before a piece of shattered floor where a staff had struck it. Three burning concentric circles radiated out from where he stood. Strange markings that reminded Steve of runes glowed red between the circles, as if a huge, invisible branding iron had descended to scorch the earth around Trendok. The heat of it pulsed against Steve's face and caused the air to rise and swirl around Trendok, billowing his warm cloak about him as he was bathed in an eerie red light. Steve had to hand it to him. The guy sure knew how to make an entrance. Behold, the great and terrible Oz, Steve whispered to himself. A soft weeping brought motion back to the world as all eyes centered on Leander. 
The monk sat on his knees, hands at his side, as if he did not have the strength or will to cover his face to hide his tears. Without hesitation, Michael knelt beside Leander and put an arm around his shoulder. Leander reached up with one arm, his robe splayed around him, and gripped Michael's shoulder as he buried his face into his chest, making the whole scene look like something out of a Renaissance painting. St. Michael comforts the weeping monk, Steve thought. Trendock lost a little of his intensity and seemed more like Xylon as his eyes fell upon Leander. Be at peace, my son. I find no fault in you, nor shall I condemn you. This, to no surprise to Steve, brought on another bout of quiet sobbing from the monk. Steve tried very hard not to roll his eyes and failed. Blasphemy! The robed figure, who Steve assumed was a priest of some sort and had almost caused a battle in the throne room, strode in front of the king, one hand pointing at Trendok, the other, Steve noticed, pressed the throne as he passed. Only our lord and savior can remove sin. You shall not... Trendok flicked his hand. The Hyperborean rebounded as if striking a wall. Neck cording with rage, he picked himself up and screamed, or at least tried to scream. No sound emitted from him. He tried to scream again, and Steve watched with great pleasure as the realization slowly dawned on the priest. His hands clawed at his throat, his mouth opening and closing like a gaping fish. I said that I see no fault in him, you mongrel. I stopped your tongue. The symbols in the stone ignited into a blinding red light. Should I remove it instead? He boomed. The priest fled. The king sat heavily on his throne. Steve figured this was the first time in a long while where the monarch wasn't the most powerful person in the room. He seemed to be taking it pretty well. And what of me, Anani? Shall I be silenced too? The king said, Will you visit your wrath upon me for the sake of my forefathers? The red light dimmed until it became a faint glow, gently pulsing like a heartbeat. Don't be a fool, Adron, Trendok answered, now sounding like the Xylon Steve knew. Who would take your place? Me? He raised his staff and leveled it at Steve and his group. These here are under my protection. I live and I see. Their fate is your fate. Trindok intoned as his sight cut across the room. He raised his staff that exploded with a brilliant light. Everyone shielded their eyes in a collective movement, and a crack thundered through the chamber as air rushed to fit the void where Trendok once stood. The floor markings had lost their glow, but remained as black symbols etched into the stone, an indelible and undeniable proof that the Hyperborean Inani had finally returned. The second stunned silence that Steve had ever experienced was broken by the king who told the guards to return to their post, confirming that he would let no harm come to the group. The dryads begrudgingly sheathed their weapons in almost invisible slots that ran up the side of their armor. Even seeing where they hid their weapons, Steve thought he'd be hard-pressed to find them again. Steve twirled his blade and returned it to the sheath he had stuffed into the small of his back. A hand slipped into his, and Steve looked up to see Heather's beautiful eyes, shiny with relief. Hey there, beautiful. Glad you could make it. He looked down at his friend. 
Michael, who shook his head, his arms wrapped round Leander, who thankfully seemed to be reaching the end of his tears. Michael only said one word, but it summed up perfectly every emotion that washed over Steve, the joy of seeing Heather, the sharp, temporary fear of battle, the terror of seeing powerful magic sear the air, the exhaustion of relief from having narrowly escaped certain harm or death. Michael looked up at Steve and simply said, Dude. That's all for this episode, Journeyers. Wow, a lot happened. Kids finally found Trendock, so I guess they can go home now. Or can they? I'm not telling. You're going to have to come back and listen to another episode. Until then, as always, thanks for listening, and be good to one another.